Hello and welcome to another episode of the Broadband Bunch. Uh, this is Pete Pizzatello, and I am joined today by Dan Davis. He's the CEO of Arcadian Infracom. Dan, uh, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, before we get into uh, the discussion, it would be kind of helpful to understand you have a really interesting background um, and have seen a lot. And I was just wondering if you could kind of unpack it and let us understand how you became the CEO uh, today. What was your journey like? Sure. Um, so I usually describe myself as a recovering engineer, recovering corporate finance lawyer, recovering corporate finance MBA. So can you tell my father is a principal? Um, so and education is rather important in my family. So, um, so I have a, you know, I can bring a technological, financial, legal mindset to, to most issues. So, uh, uh, you know, did big law firm work and mergers and acquisitions in the 90s, back when, you know, MCI and, you know, the basic, you know, telecom companies were coming about. We had a client at the law firm of Brian Cave where I worked that was a company called Digital Teleport. They were building out long haul fiber in the mid 1990s. That's the fiber that everybody's listening to this podcast on today. That fiber still sits in the ground that you know, six or seven companies like mine built that basic global fiber backbone and then added to it over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, we got funded in the you know, late 90s, built out 17,000 mile you know, fiber network across North America, eventually sold it to Lumen in 2003 uh start thought i'd stay there 12 or 18 months it was a great place for me to learn and grow i spent 15 years there deputy general counsel as they grew from 6,000 people to 53,000 people um left in 2017 uh at which point i was a vice president of uh, uh, global strategy uh and did some development work as well uh, working with what at that point had emerged as what we call hyperscalers of microsoft facebook amazon apple so um, Arcadian is really, uh, as we'll get into it, is really doing very much the same business that I built 20-something years ago and eventually sold to Lumen. Uh, it's just time to do build new long haul again. Uh, so in a nutshell, that, that's my background. Yeah, I love that. It's, you got a little bit of everything, which I think gives you a really interesting perspective, um, which we'll get into. But so, what, so why start Arcadian? You know, what was, what's your... What was the thinking there and kind of how has your mission evolved? Yeah. Um, well, we started it knowing that, you know, basically a lot of the long haul networks in the United States were built in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, a number of those companies or almost all those companies ended up in bankruptcy. The assets just got traded around and consolidated up into two companies, um, CenturyLink and Zayo. I did the consolidation at CenturyLink with some others and then Zayo consolidated it up what we didn't in, in what's called long haul fiber we'll get into what that is in a minute um and so you know when i left CenturyLink, tried to retire utter failure at retirement um too much fun to be had here um and uh my spouse said i was around the house way too much so went back to work um and built arcadian because there was a, a need um we need more fiber in more places to solve the broadband problem in rural and tribal america um, it's now become much more known what the, uh, the broadband problem. We'll talk about middle mile fiber. Why well, is that different from long haul? What does that mean? So why Arcadian? Why did we do this? One, there's a, certainly a market need. There's capital willing to fund building these new networks. And as we'll get into, you know, the mission of Arcadian, what we can achieve from an impact perspective, economic development or social impact, however you want to term it. 
you know, it really does a lot of things beyond just make money for our investors. It really does improve a lot of lives, improving broadband access in places that really need it from an economic development perspective. So it's a it's an interesting joint mission of making creating economic value for our stakeholders, our employees, our investors, but also creating a larger, more durable social value in improving broadband across America. Yeah, that you are doing some really interesting things. But let's so let's start with the basics. Uh, you mentioned long haul before, so let's just kind of define what, what what we mean between that and middle mile. Sure. So let's kind of quick one on one. What is the internet? So the internet, um, having been done done this for a little while, in my mind, the internet is a bunch of very large data centers sprinkled all over the planet. Those data centers are connected with fiber largely installed underground. It goes across countries. It goes under oceans, um, connecting all those data centers to one another. In those data centers is compute and storage. Just like you have on your phone, on the computer you're using today, it's just at massive scale of compute and storage in these data centers. Eventually, that network of data centers that's connected with fiber then gets connected to your phone or your home or your business. That is that is the internet. So when we say long haul fiber, it's typically fiber from one major market to another, or and that might be New York to London, which I helped some folks build at one point. It could be Salt Lake to Phoenix, LA to Dallas. It's that interstate highway system of the internet. It's that major fiber backbone where petabytes of data, you know, move across that network every hour. That's the internet that you all experience on your phone or whatever device you're using. Yeah, it's helpful. I think a lot of people don't fully understand the fundamentals of the, um, you know, how they get their TikTok and Facebook and all that stuff. So that's helpful. But, but you said something earlier about how, how what you guys are doing um, at Arcadian is helping uh, rural and tribal communities. So how is building long stretches of fiber across America helping those folks? Sure. So when you're, you know, we built the, the networks, you know, back in the nineties, few of us, um, you know, we built, you know, as fast and as direct as we could from, for example, uh, you know, Salt Lake, uh, to Denver or Salt Lake city to LA, um, Salt Lake to Phoenix, right? So you, you connected major market to major market, which is where most of the population centers were in the nineties. And we kind of built population center. You know, center to city center of major cities. That's kind of right. how we built the original network. Okay. Then what grew on top of that are the data centers by folks like Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook. They put these, you know, one to two billion dollar data centers, some of them in the suburban areas of these cities. That's where that Facebook experience, for example, in a Facebook data center is, is created. The compute and storage that happens in that data center. Those data centers are are the internet that you experience. When you push a button on your phone, it's usually not your phone reacting. It's the compute and storage in the data center would might be 10, 100, 500 miles away. So the experience you have on your device is really a computer in a data center somewhere reacting to what you're doing. You just don't realize your pushing of a button in a microsecond goes to the data center, the data comes back to your phone. That's what happens. That's what, that's the internet experience you have. What you realize if that experience is happening 10, hundred miles, 500 miles away, that connection between your device and that data center is important. 
that connection breaks, your internet in your world stops working. Fiber gets cut all the time. Fiber is installed underground. People putting in pools, uh, moving roads, you know, putting in water pipelines. Fiber routes get broken all the time, and it takes six or eight hours to restore them. So that data center in Salt Lake that's connected to that data center in Phoenix needs more than one connection because those connections get cut all the time by you know, people you know, interrupting the cable, cutting the cable underground through the things we talked about here. So you want multiple fiber paths between, in our example, Phoenix and Salt Lake City. What we're doing, we're building often that third, fourth connection between the major cities when the first two or three get cut. The data centers still talk to each other, so you, the internet stays up. Okay. For example, the, the analogy I use, the, the relationship between a data center and that global fiber network is the relationship between a car factory and electricity. In a car factory, the electricity goes out to the car factory, everything comes grinding to a halt, and it's a very expensive non-performing factory. Same thing with a data center. That data center, that final fiber route gets cut. You got a billion dollars of compute and storage that isn't really doing anything. So they want multiple fiber paths between these major data centers. That's what we do. We build these new paths to make the internet more resilient. Since you're trying to build routes that don't get cut when existing routes that are already in the ground get cut, you built them a long way away from existing routes. So when there's a forest fire or a earthquake or a flood that takes out the other two fiber routes yours is far enough away it's not affected by that event which means we build through the middle of nowhere right places that are far away from the existing those existing fiber backbones right so for commercial and technical reasons we build our networks far you know really through areas that are far from existing backbones because you're trying to stay away from the existing backbones so when they get cut your stays up the other piece to understand to put this puzzle together is your experience in your home or your business, your broadband experience, the speed that you get, uh, the responsiveness, the cost is directly related to how close your community is to those fiber backbones. So I grew up in Pleasant Plains, Illinois, 654 people. It's actually smaller than that now, but you know, it's a hundred miles from a fiber backbone. It costs at least a hundred thousand a mile to build fiber. It's never going to make sense to build that 100 miles to connect Pleasant Plains to the backbone. The revenue that comes out of 654 people won't support that. That's, that's, the, that's that rural broadband problem. These communities don't have a good cost-effective connection to the existing backbone. So imagine you have a point on the map, that community, and the backbone, which is 100 miles away. And you need a better connection. You need the backbone to be closer to that community. Can you move the community? Well, of course not. <laughs> right. What's the one thing we can do? We could bring, build new backbones closer to that community. So when we're building through what, you know, say the middle of nowhere, rural America, you're bringing that backbone closer to those communities that have, are far from existing backbones. And so you improve the likelihood of getting faster, more cost-effective broadband. So to summarize, for us, we're building to be diverse from existing fiber routes. We're building through communities purposefully away from existing backbones. When that backbone comes closer to the community, it improves their ability to get solid, fast, affordable broadband. So it's this, this impact we have on, on rural broadband is a natural outcome of what we do for our own business and technical reasons. So 
it sounds like a great strategy to combat. You know, the 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 concern is how private and public spending of kind of repaving the the same digital roads over and over again because of density, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this sounds like a great alternative and strategy around it. How come? How come there's not more discussion and and talking about this middle mile? I know there's a bit in the bead, but it seems like it was late to the game and it's just as mostly focused to you know fiber to the home. Yeah, you know, I think it's just a question of the knowledge of how the broadband networks work, how the internet fiber networks work, and that realization that um, you know everybody says I don't have fiber into my home. That's why my internet is slow. Right? right. That's the common knowledge. Okay. Think about it this way. It's like the water that comes into your house. You can build a, a pipe into your house. Let's say you don't have water. I mean, I, we work with the Navajo Nation. Something like 30 or 40% of the homes don't have running water, believe it or not. Still wow. within, yeah. It's not enough to build from that home that doesn't have water from the home out into the street if there's not a pipe to connect to in the street to get to the water. Think really basically. Eventually, when you turn that water tap in your house, there's a constant connection. There's a consistent connection between your home and wherever the water coming from, the the stream, the lake, wherever that water source is. If you think about it that way, everybody thinks, okay, we'll build new you know, half-inch pipes into every home that'll solve the problem. Well, if there isn't then a water pipe to connect a, from that entrance to your home back to the lake, in our in our analogy, the lake is the the backbone. You're, it doesn't solve the problem. So it really is a question of knowledge that you've got to really think end to end from where the internet lives now to where you want it to be to solve the broadband problem. You've got to think about hundreds of miles of network that need to be built, not just that fiber into your home. So, and to be fair, I, I'm not saying that there isn't any discussion on it. There are certain states that get this, right? That are kind of forefront on this. I mean, so who who are those states and how are you, are, and if you're working with them, how are you helping them? Sure. So we've, uh, we've well, we uh, recently announced a partnership with the state of California. And the state of California had the vision back in mid-2021 to set aside over $3 billion for middle mile network builds just in the state of California. Now, it might not be enough to solve all their problems. It's it's a great it's a great swipe at it, right? Three billion dollars. So there are some states like California that had the vision and knowledge to know we've got to solve the middle mile first before we solve the mass mat last mile. Think about it this way: historically, our subsidies that came from federal and state government went into these local last mile networks that that water pipe into your home, but if you don't understand that's just part of the problem why you don't have good internet, you, you know, the, that money will go unused or won't be optimally used. When you understand that you've got to solve all the way, in my analogy, from the home back to the water source, the lake or street, somehow someone in California is very wise, understood they needed to build the middle mile first, then get to the last mile. Otherwise, you know, you're building these you know, really robust local fiber networks to the home. And again, I'm very visually oriented being an engineer. It's, you know, you're building these fiber islands in the middle of an ocean that don't connect to anything without right. the middle mile. Right. So you do have some states really out there on the forefront. California, as you mentioned, the federal government put to put aside um, 1 billion of about the 65 for middle mile. You know, everybody can 
your own question whether that was the right balance, but at least there was an, an acknowledgement, I think, at the last minute that the middle mile problem was part of the problem. Yeah. So w one of my concerns is, yes, we're going to, you know, th the rush to connect everybody, but if, um, you know, as costs increase, right, and it's, you know, people can't afford <laughs> the solution that we just rushed to plug into their house over time. And if there's a lot of um, discrete proprietary efforts to do that, rather than a kind of a, a coordinated one, Mm -hmm. um, it just seems like the affordability of the systems themselves, you know, are just not going to be able to provide the connectivity at, at a price that people can afford. Yeah, it it so it's it's we address that issue through the kind of how we position ourselves in the marketplace. So we put conduits, which is you know empty plastic pipes, and you install the the fiber cables in those pipes kind of underground. Um, and then we sell the individual fiber strands to anybody who wants to buy them. We're kind of that, we're a core, we're an infrastructure provider, not a service provider. You won't read Arcadian broadband. We won't be that, you know, broadband provider to your home or office. We create, we build, you know, to use another analogy, we build the interstate highway and then let people buy lanes of that highway. That we are kind of independent of any particular service provider, as opposed to, you know, a big telco or a cable co, if they were to do it and build their own networks, you know, they're competing against each other. So they'll be less likely to sell that extra fiber they put in the ground to each other. For us, we don't compete in that marketplace. We don't compete with the internet service providers. We're willing to sell to everyone. So we really are kind of that independent dark fiber provider to the entire industry because these networks cost, you know, on the low side, all in a little over a hundred thousand a mile. I've got areas where I build and I'm over five hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a mile to build this. Jeez. So it, it that's why it hasn't happened. For any one company to build this, you don't have enough revenue to support that investment. Just as one company. It took somebody, I think, like us, who's willing to sell to all those companies the number of strands they want and kind of spread that cost over, you know, a number of industry players. That's, that, that was the, that's the, it's kind of a wholesale model as it were. Right. Um, you know, one the other thing that we think about besides affordability is consumer expectations. You know, there's a lot of discussion around about getting my 10 gig to my house so I can play with my, um, my, my goggles and, um, you know, but these things sound hard. I mean, these projects sound not complex and hard. You know, what is the timeline that you guys are you're looking at in terms of rolling these things out? And what are some of the drivers that you see is, is, um, that people need to be thinking about? Sure. Aside from just the cost, which we touched on here, um, I always kind of, my, now my engineering team and construction team would throw things at me when I say this, but, um, the construction itself, it's it's hard, but it's an understandable hard. You know, we we use these giant steel diamond tipped rock saws to go through rock because we do a lot of work in the Western U.S. There's a lot of rock in the Western U.S. There's not a lot of soft dirt out there like there is here in the <laughs> West where I am. Right. It, one, it's very expensive, but that's a knowable. That's a time, money. You know, you can control to some level those those risks. Let me give you an example. We're just finishing up all the rights away in engineering on Phoenix to Salt Lake City. Um, a lot of rock in between there. 
that 700 miles, 694 miles, 74 different permitting processes to build under 700 miles. Uh, you know, National Forest, National Park, BLM, two different states, the Navajo Nation, um, six franchises, seven counties, and a partridge in a pear tree. It just goes on and on and on. And, and so it's a massive logistical and engineering resource undertaking. It, if a, a typical route from conception to completion is somewhere in that kind of five-year time period, you'll spend half of that time assembling all those rights of ways to put the cable in the ground, to put that fiber in the ground. So that's the hard part about this, is assembling those real estate rights, even though it's along a roadway, you'll go through counties, you know, the, the kind of 74 different areas, you know, that you have to get a different permit from every one of these parties, because for the most part, under the roadways, at least in the Western US, they don't own much of the land underneath the roadways. It might be You'll be driving through like I-40, you know, west of Albuquerque. You go through a national monument, a national park. They actually own the land under the road. You would think the Arizona DOT or New Mexico owns it. They don't. So you get a you have to get a permit from the New Mexico or Arizona DOT. Then you go through the federal process. It's those federal permitting processes that are really hard. 18 to 30 months to get a permit. Because you've got cultural resources there might be um you know important archaeological things right you know, built you know there might be you know pagosa spring flower which grows apparently in one place in colorado and you have to build around <laughs> that but you got to avoid you know uh prairie dogs i spent hundreds of thousand dollars counting prairie dogs i'm not kidding um in utah you you know Anything that was wet or ever could get wet as far as, you know, even though you're in the middle of a desert, if it looks like it had water at any one point, you have a separate permitting process for that. So it's it's Jeez. really, really complex. These permitting processes, not just the number of processes, but each one has its own environmental and archaeological studies that have to be done if that soil hasn't been disturbed in the last 10 years. It's mind boggling. I, and I got to point out, because Joe and I did spend some time in Arizona, but are you going through the Grand Canyon to get to Salt Lake? How are you doing that? Um, so it's an interesting one. Um, no, um, it's a good example of this, why the network, why we have unbuilt parts of America, why the backbone went some places. So yeah, there's, I remember when I was trying to build back in the 90s from Phoenix to Salt Lake City. And, you know, you kind of draw a line straight north from Phoenix, you know, to Salt Lake City. You go north, you go by Flagstaff, and then you get to the Navajo Nation, which mm -hmm. is the size of West Virginia across northern New Mexico, northern Arizona. It's its own independent sovereign nation. We have a very trusting, long relationship with the Navajo Nation. So it took two or three years to get the permit for the Navajo Nation. They are an independent sovereign entity. It is not, they're not a state. They're not the U.S. government. The, their land is held in trust. All reservation land is held in trust for the tribes controlled by the BIA and the federal government. So you have to work with the tribe who has their own processes. Then you go to the federal government, the BIA, and go through their processes. I wanted to build straight north out of Phoenix to get to Salt Lake City. And we got to the Navajo Nation, and it was far too expensive um, what they wanted to use their right away back in the 90s. So we literally went around them. Wow. So if so. Right now, 
if you, you want traffic to go from Phoenix to Salt Lake City, it goes either Phoenix, LA, Vegas to Salt Lake City, or the other way around the horn out there on the east, it goes Phoenix, El Paso, Denver, Salt Lake City. Why? Because if you go straight north, Navajo Nation. Yeah. You go through there. If you go northwest, there's a big hole in the ground. You mentioned it, the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Unlikely right. to be able to build through or over the Grand Canyon. Right. I agree with. If you wanted to build northeast over to Denver, there's some hills called the Rocky Mountains. So building across 11,000 feet of Rocky oh, Mountains. Geez. So, so what did we do? We literally built hundreds of miles around those blocks to building a, a, a much more direct line. So when we were able to get our deal done with the Navajo Nation in 2018, it enabled that much more direct route. Okay. It's, it's, that's, it's a good example of the importance of the rights of way that 20 years ago, we built hundreds, thousands of miles around these, these problem uh, right-of-way areas. And that's kind of why you have a bunch of areas far from the backbone, picking up on what we talked about earlier. And if your community is far from the backbone, do you have good broadband? Probably not. Right. Uh, you're listening to the Broadband Bunch, and I'm speaking with Dan Davis. He's the CEO of Arcadian Infracom. We're talking about long-haul um, fiber and uh, projects. And, you know, so Dan, you've mentioned a lot of the challenges that are out there. Um, some of them sound, most of them sound legislative as well as educational, right? So how is it that we can accelerate these projects? What are some things we should be thinking about? You know, it's, um, it's, it, they're tough. There are a couple of tough competing policy issues here. We talked about really what makes things slower and more expensive to build networks is the permitting, right? Yep. Aside from the basic economics of it. But the permitting is there to protect archaeological resources, which we all respect, environmental resources, which of course we all respect. But then you've got, and that slows everything down. But then you've got this public policy goal of trying to build new fiber to allow us to get the backbone closer to the rural communities and improve their broadband. So you've got, you know, environmental protection and broadband enablement, both very laudable, important public policy goals. And right now, I think we need to rethink the balance of as we, you know, what's that right balance between protecting the environment, which slows builds down versus getting broadband to people faster. I'd, I'd point that out as, as from a public policy perspective. Not many people frame it up like that, but that's how I would frame it up. You have two very laudable public policy goals, and we may want to rethink how we're balancing our decisions between achieving those two goals. Yeah, it's interesting because we often talk about why there isn't more of a national strategy on broadband, right? And so I feel like we've gone from pushing a rope to pushing, you know, with beat a really big rope, right? And that why, before you drop all this money into and a market and set all these expectations, it feels like the federal and state governments can do a little bit more coordination uh, on this to kind of grease this process, right? Because you could run into somebody who's got a mission around environmentally. Um, and you're talking about three years on permitting process where you know, the bead money is supposed to be spent in five. Yep. So there's, um, there's, some, there's some numbers there that don't quite add up. Yeah. And this is something else we talk about. You know, I know, you, you know, how much of that money is actually going to get spent and how much is going to get spent effectively. And, and, you know, this is something that you mentioned early on from your, the previous generation of building these long haul networks. You know, there was companies that went bankrupt and there was a lot of consolidation. Do you, 
see that as a potential outcome, kind of where we're heading right now, that there's going to be people trying to do all mean, you know, all good, well-intentioned efforts, but there's just things are just not going to play out in the long run and, and things are going to fail and people are going to bail out. Um, I'd, I'd like to say I don't think that's going to happen, but that's not my belief set. Um, we, I've been through three of these cycles already um, where things are trying to be built. Some of them are successful. Some aren't. Some fail and go into bankruptcy. But as many bankruptcies as a lot of these fiber networks have been through, it just changes the ownership. The asset still has value. The asset is still okay. used. Right. Your investors take a lump and then some. But you know, I know of networks that have hand changed hands six times and two bankruptcies. And you know what? It's still working. So, you know, I think, you know, unfortunately, with this much money coming in this fast, some will be well spent, some won't. But the assets that do get built will have value. And, you know, it's a really a question of how do you make sure that asset as it changes hands ends up in the hands of people who will use it more effectively rather than less effectively. That's that's really hard to control. Though. But but the asset itself, if it gets built and it is gets up and operating, it will have value. It will contribute to solving the problem. It's just going to be a little bumpy as some of these things kind of fall over financially. Somebody else picks them up, folds them into their business. If you look back in telecom for the last 80 years, it, it, we just go through these cycles. Um, but the thing is, I like to think that there's probably no fiber asset that gets built that really is a total waste. I probably, I'm sure I could find some exception, but the fact that it goes into bankruptcy is really a financial transaction. It changes ownership hands. The asset's still worthwhile and is often still used by somebody different. So if looking ahead 24 months, you know, regardless of who owns the assets, do you feel like we're going to make, be able to deploy assets significant enough to make some headway in this digital divide? I hope so. I hope so. I, I am encouraged that this is now a national policy priority from local, state, federal. Um, as we talked about, I think you can get some of these other, you know, regulations on permitting more aligned to that mm -hmm. policy, but I do think we'll, we'll make a good dent at it. I don't think that, you know, the 65 billion is enough to solve everybody's problem everywhere. I think we admit that, but I think we'll make us take a significant swing at it um, and make a difference for a lot of people. Well, that's an interesting point. Do you see a lot of private money coming into the middle mile long haul business Absolutely. model? Absolutely. So yeah. there's been a really emergence of uh, infrastructure investors. These are people who have traditionally invested in roads, bridges, airports, ports, hard, physical, enduring assets that no matter what happens to it financially still has value, right? Um, you know, fiber and data centers are now seen as infrastructure. They're hard, durable assets. This is not a B2B SaaS where, you know, the software is only as good as you keep it updated. It's mostly people time. These are physical hard assets that have enduring value over decades. And so there is a lot of money still coming into infrastructure investment. We call it digital infrastructure. Um, it is now seen as a, a class of infrastructure. So infrastructure investors are, um, you know, sovereign wealth, uh, university endowments, uh, pension plans. Those are the, your 
primary infrastructure investors. They invest in a fund and then they invest in companies like ours. So there certainly is a lot of private money coming into this space that can be, you know, leveraged with the public money coming in. And so it's the, that capital formation uh, continues to happen. It continues to look for places to be invested well. Um, so it's be, beyond just the federal money. There is a lot of private money going into this space as well. Yeah, no, it's good to hear. Um, and so Dan, you've had a, a long career, some highs and lows, a lot of bumps, a lot of, a lot of upside. You know, what would you tell yourself um, if you can go back as a, as a young engineer coming into this space? Hmm. Be patient. <laughs> be patient. Um, don't be afraid of the hardest, doing the hardest work. Um, you know, that's why we're doing this. It's so funny. I remember sitting down with our, our head engineer when I was recruiting him. I remember the dinner in, in then downtown Denver where I was recruiting him. And I said, look, we're going to build the stuff that was way too hard to build the last time I did it. It's hundreds of thousands. It's years long to take about th to do it. And he said, well, that's good. Cause I really don't want to do anything easy the rest of my life. That's I said, well, I got that for you. Yeah, I, I'm not sure he really understood how hard this was. Um, but that, that you know, be patient. Pick the hard things. Because there's one, a lot of people shy away from the hard things. That fact that it's hard creates a competitive mode, which creates economic value, which means it can get funded, which means you can do it. So, under you know, what would I tell myself, you know, kind of don't, don't worry about, don't try to do the easy things, do the hard things, um, do the things other people are afraid to try to do. Yeah. Because that's, that's where you're going to create the most value. And I, when I talk about value, not just financial value, but as we've talked about enduring, you know, social impact, enduring economic development, we look at long haul fiber deployment. Certainly it creates great returns for our investors. Long haul fiber. And middle mile or low is a an economic development tool. That is the right way to think about these dollars. These are fiber becomes an economic development tool because we all learned that being able to live, learn, you know, work at home with broadband is incredibly important. And without that high speed connect, affordable connectivity, your kids aren't going to be able to learn. You know, older folks aren't going to be able to learn. You're not going to be able to have the flexibility of work you need. There's so many improvements of life when you can get good broadband into the home. Yeah, no, that that's interesting advice, um, especially the patience part there, tackling hard problems. I love that. Um, hey, Dan, I really appreciate talking to you. How how can our listeners learn more about you and Arcadian Infracom? Sure, uh, we have a website, ArcadianInfra.com, uh, is the best way um, entry into that, or Dan.Davis at ArcadianInfra.com, and uh, be glad to uh, have folks reach out to us. We do a lot of work with public policymakers, local all the way up to the federal level. Um, we're always looking for new partners in our business. Yeah, it's great. And uh, thank you again for joining us and sharing all your experiences and passion. Very good. Thank you for the time. So that's going to wrap up this episode of the Broadband Bunch. And I thank you uh, very much for listening. Uh, if you've made it this far, you're probably into all things broadband like Dan is and myself. To get a chance, check out our website at broadbandbunch.com. We have weekly episodes, a bunch of resources, and we'd really love to share your stories. So please reach out and let us know if you would like to be on the show. Thanks again for listening.